Untitled Beatles Podcast. Slate claps now, tell me, do you really want to go with me forever? Uh oh, oh. <laughs> or are we having Slayton fun? We got a lot of emails that say that Paula Abdul and the Beatles are kind of favorites. So I kind of wanted to give some Paula Abdul today. You know what? I had a big crush on her when she was in the top 40 or whatever. I would have been in junior high. Did it convert you to pop music then? Because you don't like pop, pop, pop music. You're not, a, you're not a fan. That was the one song I did like was straight up. There were a couple pop songs I kind of liked. I actually did like that Pump Up the Jam song. Pump up the jam. Pump it up while your feet are stumping. And I still, I was like, is that a, I couldn't tell if that was a boy or a girl doing that. And I still don't know. I also don't care. I like the voice though. I liked that person's voice <laughs> while I was running around that damn gym. Yeah. I, um, I had a weird Belinda Carlisle thing. Like I almost probably deserved her Belinda Carlisle was training order. I, I bought her, I bought her solo tapes and just looked at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was. Yeah, she was cute. She was cute. And as we've talked about and we'll explore in greater detail, a song I discovered in the early 90s, one of the last Blinda Carlisle massive chart hits called Leave a Light On has a George Harrison guitar solo flown in. He didn't know who it was for. Uh, <laughs> the producer was a mutual friend. So there's like a random Belinda Carlisle track that has a searing George Harrison solo from the early 90s. That's awesome. The first time I heard it, I'm like, oh, fuck the George Harrison. I was at like a disc jockey record store in Des Moines, Iowa or something in college being <laughs> like, oh, my, is that a George? And I, I you know, pre-internet research. And yeah, man, George Harrison plays a, a guitar solo. And I read some stories like I didn't even know who it was for. I just recorded it and sent it in. <laughs> Perfect, George. Yeah, that's that's strange. Yeah. Well, it's like that duets record. Remember that Sinatra did and like no one was ever in the room with him. <laughs> which, right? which in fairness, Paul McCartney started with Stevie Wonder where Ebony and Ivory, they were never together. Oh, really? I didn't know that. All those parts were flown in from Montserrat <laughs> or wherever they were recording that. Yeah. I mean, they were the original Zoom. <laughs> Stevie and Paul. Uh, Stevie Nicks and Paul Hogan is yes, of course, yeah. Referring. This is a knife. He's got a knife. That's not a knife. That's a knife. Stevie Nicks, <laughs> <laughs> Miss Leather and Lace, black panties with an angel's face. Well, welcome to the Untitled Beatles podcast. I'm Tony Mendoza. <laughs> I'm TJ Shanoff, and I just slipped a Steve Miller band abracadabra reference, and I was going to let it go unnoticed, but I had to give myself a modicum of credit for it. <laughs> well, today we thought we would cover those two concerts that you can see of the Beatles in 1966 performing at the Budokan. Is it Nippon? Is that how it's pronounced? I think, I think I've so. never been to Japan. Have you been to Japan? I'm, uh, impossible Germany, unlikely Japan. I've never been. I've always wanted. I, I think Australia is number one on my list, but uh, Japan would be number two. Yeah, I'd like to go there. 
I'd like to go there. It seems the Beatles did have a good time there, and all four of them had returned to Japan at some point after 66. Not so favorably for Sir Paul. Oh, right, because he got busted, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, there were two. Well, actually, there were five concerts, two of which were filmed, and I believe they were broadcast on television in Japan. There was uh, an evening concert on June 30th of 1966, and then an afternoon concert July 1st of 66. Yeah, full disclosure, this was a concert that I had bought on VHS at a record store probably when I was uh, a junior or senior in high school. And yeah, so record shows were these things. They used to have them every month. Uh, for us, it was at the Hillside Holiday Inn off of the 290. Sure. that They still do that. Do they, man? Yeah. God, I should go. To, yeah, man. Let's go there and let's do a live podcast from there one of these days. We should. We should. How about you and me at the Hillside Holiday Inn at a record show parking lot in January wearing Packers gear, <laughs> <laughs> grilling up Johnsonville broths? Yeah, get some Johnsonvilles out there. Oh, please don't do that. Charlie Murphy's cooking Johnsonville broths. Folks can't resist the simply great taste of Johnsonville broths. Well, this is where I bought that concert on a video cassette. I probably paid like 30 bucks for it. And uh, I got the July 1st concert. That's the one where they're wearing, what would you call that? Tan, maybe gray suits with these red pinstripes. Yeah. Well, and then the show before that, they're wearing darker jackets. They look kind of dark green, but with the same, uh, the kind of like shiny red shirts underneath. I like these, whatever you want to call them, uniforms. And that's the one that I had, which is what's so funny about how we came to this. I oh, cannot funny. tell you where I got it. I don't remember, but it was also on a videotape. And it was handwritten. I mean, who, whoever did it, you know, was the handwritten uh, on the on the VHS label. Yeah. And uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. So that's the one that I had. And one or both were featured on Japanese television, like on whatever their national television channel was like the night of the first. So maybe the June 30th show was shown on Japanese television because it was such a hard ticket to get. And um so this has always fascinated me, these shows, and watching them again, you and I try to put things in context on this show, Tony, and most people listening know the chronology, but these shows were like five days before Revolver came out. These shows were during such a time of change and transition that to hear them open with rock and roll music, which had been part of their set for so long... Right. There is, in my estimation, beyond the albums themselves, the way to best track how the Beatles changed and morphed in such a short amount of time is listen to the Hollywood Bowl stuff, even from 65, like less than a year beforehand, and then listen to the Budokan stuff. The difference is so stark. I don't know that any other band in history has made a change like that and then gone on to even better things at the same time, because that's the the crazy thing bands change band the good bands grow but what they grew into as their touring was winding down is absolutely absurd and has never been done and will never be done again yeah man it's 
I've always liked them because they are. They're not at their best. Let's get that out no. front. Yeah. It's sloppy. They're sloppy. They knew they were sloppy. I think even John Lennon told old friends, I think, when they were playing Germany right before these shows to say, like, oh, don't watch us. We're terrible right now. <laughs> Hang out with yeah. us. Don't watch our show. They went back to Hamburg in yeah. such a short amount of time just before these shows. Yeah. Here's the chronology. Basically, they had just finished... Revolver, meaning they wrapped it up last studio day in Revolver doing, I forget what they were doing, but probably some overdubs for Andrew Burke and Sing or something. <laughs> the last Revolver session was spent recording She Said, She Said. Thank you, Beatles Bible. Suffice it to say, they finished up the album and they go on tour the next day, like not even a day off. They get on tour. So they're, they haven't rehearsed. Their, their shows are their rehearsals. So, yeah, they're completely under-rehearsed. They played Germany for a few shows, uh, went back to Hamburg for the first time since 62. I want to say you can also listen to the Munich show or even maybe see it. I forget, but I think the Munich show's out there. Whoa, whoa, listen to the Munich. Whoa, whoa, listen to the Munich. <laughs> so... Yeah, so they go from Germany, and then they arrive in Japan, and, uh, you know, they go over the details of that in Anthology, about how they were just on this rigid schedule, and they do it well in Anthology. They explain it, like, five minutes after, you will get in the elevator. Elevator lasts, you know, a minute eight or whatever, and... It's funny because it's a supercut with, I think it's George, Paul, and Ringo all mm -hmm. remembering. It's, it's one of the great edits in all of the anthology. It's good. It's good. Yeah. And then, of course, they were just being Beatles and being late and making steam come out of their heads and stuff like that. <laughs> like a cartoon. If you can make steam comes out of someone's head, you're doing okay. But yeah, they did uh, five shows. I Their set was the same for the two shows that were filmed and it, it did seem like they were having a good time during this string of shows in Japan. I guess there was some art piece that they were excited about working on. They would do their show and then go backstage and keep working on this art piece. So I think they, they were probably more into that than rock and roll music, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, the, the art piece is a cool Beatles story. That, that That's part of the anthology book where they mention that too. The Ron Howard movie from a couple years ago, the Eight Days a Week movie, yeah. was supposed to really focus, I think, on their time touring the States, was my initial impression. But then it kind of became, you know, the last 40 minutes is they get into Japan and then falling apart, you know, with all the, the Bible stuff. But then it's let it be. They, they do some pepper stuff. Like, I, I, a lot of people were not kind to Ron Howard when that movie came out. I thought it was really, really good for what it set out to do. It was not like watching anthology, but one thing that got me was the cleaned up footage. And what was so frustrating in the eight days a week movie is I'm pretty sure it's nowhere man in at, uh, uh, at Budokan and the best quality you've ever seen, but then there's narrations over it. So one of my big questions, and uh, we talk about this a lot, Tony, my kind of area of Beatle interest most is in the releases, in the physical media releases. That's what I've been collecting all my life. That's what I care about the most. That's kind of my sweet spot of trying to understand stuff. And in 2021, with the exception of some moments in the anthology film, 
and the anthology soundtrack has two of the June 30th show, uh, songs, Rock and Roll Music and She's a Woman, that in that first disc. Yeah. There's no Beatles at Budokan official release. No. It is, it, it's insane because it's, it's a pristine shot-for-television document that makes you like, will it take Peter Jackson to make the performance quality better? Because part of the <laughs> right. thing, there's so much lethargy and frustration. Ringo looks unhappy 70% of the time. <laughs> he does. You hear women screaming, and then you see rows of Japanese men in suits just seated. And there's all the controversy that surrounded it that they, they, they get into in the anthology about Budokan's supposed to be reserved for, like, spiritual stuff and or sumo wrestling. So it kind of really is a seminal moment, and it's another thing you can't buy legally. The remaster of this in the Ron Howard documentary leaves me breathless. I want to see the whole thing that good. I've had a bootleg I transferred from VHS in, you know, 90, whatever. Like, I right. want to see this look beautiful. I do, too. I do, too. Yeah, there's lots of stuff out there. It'd be great to see that all cleaned up without narration and remastered, all that. Like, things like the the DC show, which is, to me, one of their most exciting performances ever in 64 in February, after they've done Sullivan. They finally issued that as an iTunes bonus thing that's never been out on physical media. Why do you think Budokan has has lived uh, shut in the Apple vaults all these years? Do you think they'd be embarrassed by it? Do you think from a historical perspective? Yeah. It's 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 worthy? I do, but uh, you know, I think it's the same reason why the Decca audition hasn't officially been released other than those songs from Anthology. They they cherry picked Enough to be like, okay, we put it out. You don't have to hear the other ones that have bum notes in them or Paul sounding unsure of himself. Or Pete Best not knowing how to play drums competently. <laughs> You're so mad at Pete Best. Drumming nuts. <laughs> He's not that bad. He has one fill. <laughs> Three cool cats. Yeah, I think these recordings show the Beatles perhaps at their worst, at least at their musicianship worst. That said, I find them highly entertaining. And there are moments, it's not like they're the shags or whatever, you know, they can keep a beat. But there's like constant lyric flubs. Uh, there's some sloppy solos. There's some missed things. Dude, that's... <laughs> In college, dude, and I don't mean to brag, I was Captain <laughs> Sloppy Solos, dude. <laughs> Getting back to uh, to Budokan, when it kicks off, I've always loved a guy and who I've whether fairly or unfairly termed Japanese Ed Sullivan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he has about as much charisma <laughs> as Ed Sullivan. He's Japanese Ed Sullivan. <laughs> Here they are. And now, well, I think I wrote down the direct quote, but he says something to the effect of... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the Beatles! Yeah, it's very wooden. <laughs> Yeah. And to be clear, the crowd here, it's a different crowd than any other Beatle tour. They're more sedate. There's some screams here and there. You hear a couple people. I think at one point you hear someone shout for Ringo. Yeah. 
Yeah, in the preamble leading up to the actual concert, there's some black and white, you know, newsreel footage of the concert happening, and they, the voiceover is all in Japanese, so I'm not sure what is being said, but I do know that I don't know if they addressed the controversy, but the Beatles did get death threats for playing this Budokan. Yeah. They were the first rock band to play Budokan. It has since become, you know, Cheap Trick and bunch of other bands have made it i want you <laughs> to want me rockford's own i claim them as chicago's own <laughs> chicago land yeah chicago the great chicago land area i'm gonna guess that you as a rock fan i'm gonna put you on the side of liking cheap trick am i right yeah i like them i do not not like them yeah but i i'm not like really into them either i think i have dream police record and the the live record that's about it well i don't mean to get political tony but it's time to defund the dream police out <laughs> 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 of my head it's a hard slogan people are gonna just assume that <laughs> means like get rid of that album burn that album but that's not what that means it just means <laughs> that album should be free <laughs> I, I stole that bit from a mutual friend Mick Napier who put up a picture of the police and, <laughs> and with the defund the police joke on Instagram that made me laugh so I kind of stole that bit and I gotta give Mick credit for that alright let's go track by track it's the same set list for both shows so let's go through it I just do want to say I like those suits. I like how they looked. I know I already mentioned that already, but they look snappy. In in both the suits, the, and that's the remaster. Really, in my bootleg, the dark green looks like black because the yeah. bootleg's so terrible. So to see the dark green was just a gorgeous kind of revelation. Yeah, I always thought they were black too, and I actually secretly prefer it black. They look the Beatles look good in black, and they didn't wear it that often. Post Hamburg, they didn't do it that much. And they sing Babies in Black in both these shows. And also, uh, just for frame of reference, Black is Black, I Want My Baby Back. Uh, are you, we talking about Los Bravos? Los Bravos, band, what a great one. That band is amazing. That was a Spanish band. That's my go-to karaoke. <laughs> black is Black, that's a great one. What a great, that's a great Oldies 104.3 song. That whole band, the B-side of that is even better. Um, I was in a band that we covered that song because it's so the B-side. Cool. Um, yeah. I got to check that out. A Spanish band with a German or Dutch lead singer or something like that, singing in English. Well, after the, uh, the Japanese Ed Sullivan introduces them, in the first show, you'll see that the, there's a big backdrop that says the Beatles. And after he introduces them, the little Christmas lights turn on. So great. It's a great moment. Like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, this is obviously before Kiss and Explosions and Alice Cooper and Guillotines and all that. But <laughs> And then the Beatles come out and they're turning on their own gear. That's so great. <laughs> they're reaching behind the Vox amps to turn them on. And then they're kind of getting in tune. It's it's just cool to see the Beatles doing things that local bands do. <laughs> yeah, in the middle of their success. And it's so cool that it's all kind of pro shot, especially the one in the green suits. It's all shot for Japanese television with like crane shots and, move, yeah. and moving dolly cameras. And dolly, yeah. yeah. So it's beautifully done. Yeah, it's cool. It is cool. Yeah. So then they kick into rock and roll music. 
which I wrote down, you know, it, it was competent and also confident. So, I mean, if you haven't seen this and you're expecting like perilous garbage, it's it's not that. But it's definitely whatever the excitement of those first couple tours is definitely diminished, if not tarnished or perhaps left the building. John said many times that the guts of the Beatles were taken out by the time they got to America because they'd already, Mm. you know, what they'd experienced, certainly, you know, in Hamburg and at the Cavern and those early tours of England pre-American Beatlemania, they were already number one and massive and, and girls screaming. So we're now, what, three years removed from that? I think there's a lethargy in rock and roll music and the first two songs that they play are, are the last songs in the closing disc of anthology two of, excuse me, on, on the closing of disc one on, on anthology two. And it's rock and roll music and she's a woman and rock and roll music is lethargic. It's the short version. They used to do the short version of twist and shout in the same, in the same spot. That's right. So it's interesting like that. They do these edited versions of songs they've known by heart for six years or whatever it was. But it's interesting, like, because it does sound lethargic. You can hear John Lennon's Dylan influence so clearly in the lead in rock and roll music compared to the track on Beatles for Sale. It's so cool hearing kind of the druggy Dylan <laughs> experience John Lennon vocal bringing it to this to me is just great. It's such a great opener. I started playing that rock Yeah, it's definitely a fuzzier version of this band. I guess that's why I always just kind of like these concerts. It's cool to see them kind of fuzzy. She's a Woman is next up. Yeah. And I feel like this is the closest to like 64 Beatles because Paul, as much as I call him hashtag sweaty Paul, Paul is sweating up. He is sweating. He's working. Confident, confident, dry and secure. Raise your hand, raise your hand. If you're (laughs) sure. sure. (laughs) That's the best ad campaign ever. They just scream the word confident twice. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to kick someone's fucking ass because of my deodorant. Raise your hand. You got it. Raise your hand. You know it. You feel confident, secure. But yeah, so uh, she's a woman. In addition to being sweaty, Paul, he's smiley, Paul. Like that, I think what Paul's often taken shit for that I give him total credit for is even when they were quote unquote bored, Paul McCartney was always the showman. Paul McCartney was always on and presenting and bringing it. Yeah. When John George and Ringo could have cared less, and that's where Paul got the bad reputation in the original Let It Be cut, the infamous George Harrison argument, which now in the Peter Jackson movie comes with a laugh track. <laughs> yeah, and a, and a big makeup <laughs> right, hug. Right, right. CGI a hug in there. <laughs> they CGI a hug, um, and uh, and then it's Paul going. No, we think all things must pass should be on this record. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, the, and then it's on there. Right? Now it's on there. Now it's on di- digitally <laughs> restored. Um, but yeah, like she's a woman is a moment. It feels like one of the few moments in the show. And even though they close with "I'm Down," which we'll get to at the end. She's a woman feels like Paul bringing the band back to the glory days of touring, and it's a cool energy moment in the two hole for that reason. She don't give more 
If you notice, in She's a Woman, Paul, at least in the first concert, is, is the beginning of his microphone problems. That microphone that cannot stay straight. Yeah. <laughs> so he keeps adjusting that. But yeah, it's a great performance. Actually, I think it's probably the best performance both shows in the set. And in the second show, the, uh, the Pinstripe Outfits show, they kind of have more of a jammier quality towards the end. They kind of let loose a little bit. Like they, they finally maybe got some rehearsals in. And you actually get to see the solo George plays. The camera gets a nice shot of it. Yeah. It's great. And in, in the other show, I feel like it's a little more lethargic. It looks like Ringo looks bored, but he's still swinging the shit out of it, which I love so much. Like even a disengaged Ringo is just bringing so much to that beat. I mean, he is beating the hell out of those drums so he can be heard because yeah. it looks like there's like just the one microphone for him or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And he does. It's all the more impressive when he gets to I want to be your man, which we'll get to. But like, that's some of my favorite moment in this whole thing, too. Then Paul does an intro for this is a curious place for this song. Third song out. I feel like rock and roll music. She's a woman. They're both upbeat. I, I, I guess I get it. It would be like a tempo cleanse or something like that. <laughs> But I don't know. To me, that third song, usually your number three, it should be, I don't know, a big hit. Yeah, I don't know. In, in the Paul McCartney v- vernacular, this is where like We Got Married or Lonely Road would come in. So I think that, is that right. Yeah, is that what he does. OK, I don't know his sets that well. Yeah, I, I feel like the three hole is that you've all settled in and let's kind of pay attention now to what's going on. And this one has always been frustrating me because I feel like. If I needed someone live, there's a certain lethargy from George, but also Paul and John don't seem to care too much. This seems right. this one Classic. seems to me like like an early understanding of why George must have felt like shit a lot of the time. You know, this is not from a small album. This is off Rubber Soul slash USA yeah. uh, slash U. I almost called yesterday and today USA Today. Dude, my favorite Beatles album, the life section. My second favorite, the sports section. I like the money section, the green one, which is super cute. Um, But it's interesting because Paul doesn't seem to know what album it's from. When Paul announces it, this is an interesting moment, at least in in the the green suit show, where, uh, you know, in Japan, they were still releasing a little bit like America, their own versions of records and different things were singles that weren't. Then he introduces a seminal George track from Rubber Soul. It's a shame that this one's done so half-assed because I love the song, but this song's kind of always been emblematic of why the show probably hasn't been formally released by Apple. And hello, good evening, and everything. And we'd like to do a song now, which is off one of our LPs. And this is a song which is sung by... Oh. Sung by... Our guitarist George is called If I Needed Someone.
George does seem lost in it at times because he he just cuts out on the lyrics like he uh -huh. shorts out lyrically during the song. <laughs> there is an out of tune quality to somewhere. Someone is out of tune in there. Some uh, vocally, somebody's out of tune in there. And then you cut to Ringo, at least in the the green suits show. He gets this single shot of him playing and his he looks so disinterested and his mouth he looks so glum. His mouth is at this like 45 degree angle. He looks like he's in a, a far side comic, you know, one of those Gary Larson <laughs> totally. characters where they, they have the two lips that are like at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> and I, I love that glitchy sound too, that happens when Paul introduces the song. Yeah. This is the famous moment in pre-anthology life where the complete Beatles. Yes uses this clip from the afternoon show on July 1st of this song to show how the Beatles were a terrible live band at this point. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do complete Beatles soon because that for me, that's other than the Beatlemania musical, probably the number two most relevant Beatles moment of my early childhood is that VHS tape. And the fact that that's been lost through the mists of time since the anthology is embarrassing and abominable and whether the Beatles produce a tidy, uh, you know, two hour version of anthology at some point, the complete Beatles was a gift for generations of Beatles fans. And you know how many times it's been issued on DVD, Blu-ray or digitally zero. It is a bootleg only because the anthology and the coffers at Apple decided to do their own thing. I get it, Tony, but I'm anti-rewriting history and that you've not been able to purchase the complete Beatles since the early 1990s. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it is. It is a quality documentary. I, I would I would love to watch that again, actually. The Liverpool's up. I want a walking, talking, thinking, talking, living, dull. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All that stuff. Yep. Yep. It's a great documentary. It's uh, me, too. I, uh. I was just watching that endlessly until uh, Anthology came out. Let there be Beatles, the complete Beatles, now in your own home on MGM UA video cassettes or video discs. And then uh, after If I Needed Someone, then John intros and he does his kind of bit. Notice he doesn't do the thing where he makes fun of people with mental issues anymore. That seemed to go away around 65, I think, right? Yeah, I don't know if he got bored with it or he just his better angels got the best of him, but that's an unfortunate moment in Beatles history is John kind of the clap your hands and stomp your feet and the affected voice was none too kind, but you also can't rewrite what he did in 65 you know, or in 64. What, what can you do? It got laughs. A lot of people did bullshit things for laughs back then that I don't think were bad people. Yeah. And here we are, and he's not doing it anymore by 66. So right. there's that. Growth. But he is doing that thing where he reaches out to the gods or whatever. He he does a very quick, It's it really is just like, oh, I'm going to do a very short version of the stuff I did in 64 to get some wows from yeah. the crowd. It's great shtick. <laughs> he was a master. The Beatles were masters of stage patter and shtick, right? And I know we talk about it, but the most underrated thing about the Beatles is how funny they were and how yeah. engaging and endearing they were. They're bored with touring. They're wiped out. They've just been back to Hamburg, which was surely emotional, seeing the, the, the coat check girl and the waiters and the kitchen staff and all the same people that were there when they were young. That was, must have been some emotional stuff for them. 
And, you know, here they are still putting on a show in Japan. So I give them a ton of credit for how endearing and engaging they were. I love how John introduces, I'm forgetting in which show, he goes, this song was a single over here, maybe. And the song's called Day Tripper, which is another commentary <laughs> on what are people releasing? What, why is Mr. Moonlight a single in France? Like, what are you... <laughs> what are we releasing here? Which right. is so funny because it wasn't until after Revolver when Sgt. Pepper came that everything became uniform. Uh, we'd like to sing uh, another song, I think. This song was a, was it a single. Yeah, uh, this song was a single over here. Maybe. And the song's called Day Tripper. This one in particular, yeah, Day Tripper. There's a sloppy guitar solo on that Dark Suits show, the June show. Off-key screaming, sloppy guitar solo coming out of that bridge. It's it's rough. And then Ringo doesn't do the fills at the end. You know, those classic fills at the end of Day Tripper that you live for? They're kind of triplety. No, nope, he's just keeping that beat so that they just stay on time. Day Tripper. This is one that is, it's the tempo's too slow, the performing is too messy, and it's still glorious. And I can't explain why, but I still am so drawn to this performance. It's so sloppy, it's to the point of beauty. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I like my art a little sloppy. Yeah. I like my bands a little sloppy. So I, I think that's also, it's punk rock too. Like there's totally. that thing where like the precision is not what it does it for me. Yeah, and I also think George's fuzz sound is actually great on this. What you can hear of it on these boots. Yeah, they get some of the lyrics wrong. And then in the July show, I just found this interesting. John Lennon jokingly introduces it as a single from 1948. I'd like to do another number that was a single record in 1948. Rumble, rumble. So that's like today saying, oh, here's a single from 2003 and it getting a, a laugh. There's something about it that's just different. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Fountains of Wayne and uh, <laughs> <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Oh, I love that guy. Adam Schlesinger. Great songwriter, by the way. Very Beatles inspired. Yeah. I got to play them on the radio. I like that. band. That was one of the few bands I actually liked playing on the radio. Yeah, because they're they're Beatle pop inspired. They their title track to the Tom Hanks movie That Thing You Do, his attempt at writing a Beatle pastiche is as good as anything on the Ruddles and is as good as anything Utopia did on that Deface the Music album. It's a great Beatles pastiche. Yeah, I took that note down too. A record that was a single in 1948 called Day Tripper. It actually feels like it, Tony, given their progression. This is days before Revolver came out. Right. And as forward-thinking as Day Tripper was, not that long before, here you are a year later on the precipice of an album that ends with Tomorrow Never Knows. It's insane. The mythology is worthy of the praise. It's insane. The growth combined with the quality of growth is unmatched. Can't argue, man. <laughs> more, more Beatle hot takes on the Untitled Beatles podcast but it's true I mean like I'll never get tired of saying it there's a lot of other art I love as well but 
I'm just I'm so moved by their story and by their their progression as part of it too. Like what other band? Stones have twelve great albums. Bob Dylan's got twelve or fifteen great albums. But do any of them make your heart feel the way the Beatles sweep does? Nothing comes close to me. No, man. Maybe Duran Duran. <laughs> I feel like like going from Rio to Arena was a big step. Also, Capitol Records recording artist Duran Duran. <laughs> and the Beastie Boys, too. Yeah, they made their Capitol debut with Paul's Boutique, which is probably, the, I think, their best album. And they sampled the Beatles on it. And then they just, no intro, go right from Day Tripper into Babies in Black. Both shows, no intro, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, they really do have it down. Like, there's no intros for the first two songs. Paul always takes the If I Needed Someone intro. John always goes into Day Tripper. The rest of the show's pretty planned out. George is going to say this part for this bit. So, yeah, so then they go right into Babies in Black. Fun song, cool. I'm glad they're still doing that one. It's a nutty one. Also, Ringo's just riding the hell out of that crash symbol. <laughs> it's just wash, 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 wash. Yeah, he's both he and the way the band are playing this. If you go back one year, Tony, to the performance at the Hollywood Bowl in 65, in August of 65, the difference in just under a year is stunning. In the tempos, in the delivery, in the way Ringo's playing. Certainly the crowd noise at Hollywood Bowl is way, you know, it's way more of the American screaming we're used to, but... That's like Babies in Black is a good litmus test on this record to hear how much they changed. Go back and hear the Hollywood Bowl version from the recent uh, the soundtrack to the Ron Howard film. And um, I think it was also a B-side of one of the anthology singles, actually. Hmm. And um, and compare it to the Budokan Babies in Black. That's one year of a difference. It's like a whole different band. say george throws in some fun country licks at the end of the afternoon show in july the pinstripe suit show he gets a few cool little licks in there anytime a cracker barrel looked busy or chili's was busy my family would always take me to country licks as a kid <laughs> that's where we'd stop on like trips to indiana we'd always go to country licks is that one of those places where people just start throwing biscuits around in the room yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big place for biscuit tossers, and it's another place where you're allowed to just drop peanut shells anywhere you fucking want, because that's sanitary. I'm nervous, like, ah, oh, throw the peanut shells on the floor. I'm not at a ball game. I'm at a, 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 it's a restaurant in a mall. I'm cool putting my peanut shells elsewhere beyond the floor. No, no, man. Just, uh, you know, take your pants off. Just put those on the floor. <laughs> what place is this? Relax. It's cool, man. We're not uptight, you know, like a TGI Fridays, you know. That's some straight bitches like a Bennigan's. Yeah. That's like, Tony, do you think the same people that are frustrated about masks argue at Walgreens about shoes and shirts? <laughs> or like McDonald's or like when you walk into like uh, the place that say no shoes, no shirt, no service. And they're like, are those violating their fucking rights? No shoes, no shirt. No problems. 
Then we have uh, George's intro into I Feel Fine, where John Lennon seems to get the pronouns mixed up on this song often. Yeah, a couple times. She's in love with me. I'm in love with her. There's some fun uh, miscommunications on that. I think Paul's guilty of messing up a word or two as well. It's fun, though. It's fun. It's fun enough. I think on the second show, they actually had a little bit of a feedback intro going into it, which is cool. Yeah, which is pretty cool to replicate that from the record. The next song we like to do is a song called I Feel Fine. get a new version of yesterday yeah one of the highlights yeah it's the full band version so that's new from 65 i guess prior to this they would be an acoustic guitar and just paul and sometimes with an orchestral backing that they would play in like an early track which i think is pretty cool interesting i didn't know that yeah but to have the whole band playing i actually prefer yesterday this way revolver was about to be released I always kind of hear the for no one band arrangement, obviously without the uh, brass stuff, but it feels like the way the band's playing along, the way Ringo plays drums on for no one a little bit, it just, this sounds to me kind of inspired a bit by that kind of playing. Yeah, it's cool. And Paul is very sweaty for this. Yeah, hashtag sweaty Paul. <laughs> but he's not too sweaty to give a rousing intro for Ringo's turn in the spotlight for I Want to Be Your Man. Which is badass. We've talked about this before. The way he plays drums and sings that song at the same time, it's sloppy. It's all over the place. It's badass. I think it's great. We'd like to sing a song um, which features... Uh, drummer, the song is called I Wanna Be Your Man, and to sing it, Ringo! It's big fun, yeah. And then you'll notice the difference in the first show, 
the microphone is placed like kind of where he's drumming. Like it's just on a stand like the others have their microphones. And that's hard to do because it's hard. Like if your left hand wants to move to the floor, Tom, it's going to knock over that microphone or you have to do some gymnastics around it. So by the second show, he's got a boom mic that is easier. It's a little bit more. It's not exactly overhead, but it's nearly overhead so that his hands are free to play. He does a great job both ways. One of the sad things about seeing Ringo play now, I mean, he is 80, but Ringo rarely, if ever, plays drums on his own songs on those all-star band shows. He's usually right. kind of down, he's down front singing with like Greg Bissonette or, you know, Sheila E. playing drums. Right. And it's it's not the same. No, it's definitely not the same. No. I think that's what I was trying to say last week with our Ringo show. To me, like Ringo is just best as the drummer, you know, that's where he's best. Well, he's best as the drummer and when he's on a sentimental journey. <laughs> or he's just sentimental about journey. <laughs> this song's featured on uh, Ringo 2012. Oh, really? <laughs> no, but it should be. Oh. <laughs> At one point, I love he does a cover of his own song, Wings, from Stop and Smell the Roses. And that's I'm like, oh, it's a Ringo song I've never heard twice. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Unless Terry Hibbard's playing it. <laughs> Two for oh, here's, Tuesday. Here's a, a wonderful outtake from Bukua Blues. Terry, I love you, but it's not wonderful. I know somebody requested it. It doesn't mean you have to play it. Here's four non blondes with all together now. Like, why? What are you doing? I, I know they did it. Are you making that up or did they do that? I'm, I'm totally making that up. Okay. I play a game in my head called Makeup Cover Versions Terry Hemmert's Played. One, two, three, four. Can I have a little more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I love you. Well, then John intros uh, Nowhere Man in the second show, as he says, uh, here is another song, another song entirely. We'd like to do another song now that's another song. There's another song entirely. He's right. He's right, because they didn't play I Want to Be Your Man again. Instead, they go into Nowhere Man, <laughs> which, um, boy, this one has this one is another one where it's a little problematic live. Yeah. The harmonies are a little tough. That first time they do it in the dark suits, they sound so tentative. They are playing the quietest I've ever heard them play. <laughs> yeah, they sound scared. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, shit, we're playing this. It's almost like a hot potato with the song. But then they, they bring it back. They do turn the volume up eventually. But uh, yeah, it's George gets the lyrics. I think it's George. You know, after the full round of He's a Real, the intro, and it's time for the second verse or whatever, I it sounds like someone, and I thought it was George, goes back into, he's uh, real. Yeah, it, it totally sounds like that. <laughs> he's a real
this is one that they use. I know in the Ron Howard film, forgetting if the synthology as well, but to illustrate how hard it was replicating their songs live because these harmonies are so tight and or at least on record they are. This and Paperback Writer coming up are really hard. These are like examples A and B of why touring had become impossible, especially in that era. Like people are spoiled by the advances in technology when you're on the road right now. George Harrison talked about this when he did his Japan tour. That's where they could replicate the strings on something and the harpsichord on piggies and stuff. You know, that was unimaginable in the certainly the mid 60s, 65, 66. So right. to even try to replicate Nowhere Man and Paperback Writer deserve credit. A little like if I needed someone, it's ballsy that they were doing somewhat new stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad they did. And they can't do For No One. There's like no guitar on it. They're not going to bring a piano out on stage. Yeah, also the instrumentation changed. We always mention Tomorrow Never Knows as an example. Like, how would you do that live? You just probably wouldn't. <laughs> and they didn't. No, in 66, no, no way. Though I would love to, have, I'd love to see this band do it. You know, I'd like to hear what the hell that would be. Maybe it's uneventful, but. Well, one day, Julian, Sean, Danny, <laughs> Zach, and James will do Tomorrow Never Lies to You. That's how insulting. This is another other episode where, like, in the 80s, like, well, it's easy. You know, Paul, George, and Ringo get together and you bring in Julian, and it's the goddamn Beatles, and they gotta do it. Like, what? Are, what is what's wrong with you people? Julian will do it. Yeah. It's crazy. I remember them finally acknowledging that in anthology, saying, like, well, you don't want to bring him into this mess. Yeah, yeah, totally true. When they're all sitting around the table together. <laughs> yeah, like you said, and then paperback writer after a, an intro from Paul where he says "domo," which I imagine that means thank you. Yeah, ask sticks, and now oh, yeah. Dennis D. Young. Domo arigato, Mr. Domo. Paperback writer. That's a, yeah, it's a hard one again. Again with the harmonies. That first show. That version is a train wreck. Yeah, it's bad. Like the Frere Jacques are so off key. Every now and then George does this like big hammy wave to the crowd to get them excited. <laughs> yeah. I think he does that. He does that during the harmonies part to cover up the harmonies they're about to do. <laughs> He's like, oh, totally. This isn't going to go well. Cover it up with a big wah! Yeah, this, I think, is the one that they show in Anthology where they say it was getting harder and harder to replicate stuff live. Yeah. And uh, also, I think in the Playboy interview, John called the song Son of Day Tripper. So yeah. it's cool that there exists a set list where Day Tripper and Paperback Writer exist in the same live show. That was not a frequent occurrence in the Beatles touring years. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. They kind of end it just really plain. You know what? I have burned in my head. The version from Paul is live where he does this. And it's not much better with Paul and his touring. All due respect to Hamish Stewart and Robbie McIntosh and those guys. But the Paul's live version, not much better. But he ends with like, uh, he goes, paperback rider, paperback rider. 
And that's what ends it. And it's so burned in my head. I'm like, do they do that at Budokan? Did Paul get that from there? I'm like, nope. They don't do it. Then Paul does the last intro, which I guess you would then call an outro. And uh, they go into I'm Down. And I think he says, this will be their last song because they've got to get back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, which is kind of cool. And a prelude, if you will. Yeah. The show in the light suits, George Harrison's solo in this is badass and weird and great. I love it. Yeah, I wrote it's that down. Awesome. Cool, dirty George solo. It's Yeah, it's not what he plays on the record. And he does that a couple times on these sets where it's like, oh, he does something different. I love it. One of the biggest buzzkills of the entire Budokan experience is the organ is clearly set up for John to play organ and I'm down. I've never read a reason why, but John never goes to the organ for I'm down. No, no. Yeah, you do see that organ. I, I, I was thinking that that had to be for one of the other bands, the support bands or something. Who were the support bands? Weren't they like just local Japanese? I read one local Japanese band open with a song called We Love the Beatles. Like, oh, right. that's right. In the anthology book. Yes. And I think you can actually hear that somewhere. I totally forgot about that. Welcome, So the support acts were, they were, like you said, TJ, all local artists. There's the Drifters who, you know, you knew they were from Japan, right? Las Vegas presents the original Japanese Drifters. <laughs> the Drifters. Yuya Yuchida. Ayaso. Yuya Yuchida. Yudo Yuchida. Yudo Yuhida. There's another band here called Isao Bito. Uh, the Blue Comets. Was another group. The Drifters are a Japanese rock and roll band comedy group. The band formed as Sons of Drifters around 1956. So there you go. We should check them out. One, two, one, two, three, four. Well, what do you think, TJ? Should they officially release this Budokan? Yeah, and I hate to sound morbid, um, but I do think that there'll be a time when the surviving Beatles are gone where items of historical import that aren't quite as Apple Records tidy uh, will be released. And this is, again, for the ninth time today, a whole other episode. 
the anthologies need a remaster and a remix. To go back and re-edit the anthology with 2021 technology versus early 90s stuff, maybe you can scrub Paul McCartney out of a boat. Rubber soul! I think that the Budokan footage, the way that just the tiny taste of Nowhere Man was reissued in that Ron Howard movie, it was almost the best part of that whole film. Not the colorized stuff from the, you know, they, they colorized, I think, one of the Blackpool shows. They made some Ted Turnery choices for you 80s uh, table kids. <laughs> right. But yeah, now that Let It Be is coming out, a remastered Budokan that was pro shot is probably number one on my list of things I want to see because it is not their best moment, but it's the beginning of their touring end because then what happened, Tony? They go right to the Philippines and it's like a typhoon and they insult Marcos and they're getting threats. Yeah. And 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 then they come back to the States and it's the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. And it's the joke we make on the show a lot. Come down, but take your local copies of Beatles VI and burn them. And then re- it's all that shit. <laughs> and then they go Beatles VI. I love that you call it that. What do you call Rocky Three? Rocky I I I. Rocky I I I. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> if you like Carmen Miranda and Survivor, you'll love Carmen Miranda on this season, Survivor. I've always called it Beatles VI. It's one of my weird Beatle quirks. I love it. I love it. I'm going to call you out on it. it I always do. But I mean, it, it's Budokan is significant as there are many moments in Beatles history for a great many things. And the beginning of their touring end might be the most important reason why documented as beautifully as any Beatles show ever on film. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, and distinguished guests. God damn it. The guests don't interest me. I care about our loyal fans. The ones from the beginning are our real fans. Newcomers, sorry. Switch off, dudes. Because I don't know if we have... Do we have dudettes listening? Do any women like this show? I don't know. No, my wife doesn't. My wife just goes, I heard you screaming and giggling about the Beatles for three hours. Yes, that's what I do. With a love like that, you know you should be glad. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Well, this has been the Untitled Beatles podcast. <laughs> it has. We go. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>